The depth of God's love and mercy is that he not only restores us to a relationship by overlooking our past transgressions, but also knowing that we will sin in the future, God extends grace which keeps us in his favor despite our flaws. Hi, I'm Femi Asabin, a preacher for the Church of Christ. Thank you for tuning in to today's sermon, God Forgave and Forgives Again taken from Zechariah 12. In the days of Zechariah, after God's people were rebuilding the temple when the exile was over and God's forgiving grace was extended to his people for their sins, calling them back to the land promised them, we get a reference pointing to Christ. God knew that his people would not fully live up to the standard he set, so he made a way for all people through them in Jesus to be extended more grace and forgiveness. Even now, God's mercy reaches us, compelling us to strive to live godly. Yet God understands that even after our sins are forgiven through baptism, we are flesh and we will sin again, and he needs and will forgive us again. Thinking of that song, Love Lifted Me, it's amazing you know, the love that God had for us. Because if we contemplate the guilty distance that we were from Christ and what he did to bring us back into his fold, we understand that it was a great gulf. And it's not the fact that it was a great gulf that God overcame through the sacrifice of Jesus to bring us back into relationship with him. It's that after he did that, we still have to overcome ourselves. So after God has forgiven us, we still find ourselves succumbing to our human nature and committing sins, the very sin that caused Christ to go to the cross, and he forgives us for it. And uh, the beautiful thing about the depth of love that God has for us that lifts us is that God already knew that this was going to happen. If we can recall in our minds where the children of Israel are at as the prophet Zechariah is preaching his oracles that God has given to him. As we look at a section of the 12th chapter, we know that what God is saying is come back to me, rebuild this temple. I'm going to dwell in this temple with you because I want to establish you as my people again because your sins caused you to go to exile and I've forgiven you and now I'm going to restore that relationship and that relationship is going to be restored and one of the great signifiers of that is the fact that this temple where you worship me will be rebuilt. You don't have a kingdom, but I'm going to put Zerubbabel as the governor. I'm going to put Joshua as the high priest and the relationship will be established with me through the law that I gave to you in the days of Moses. And you can continue as my people, knowing that I'll protect you and bless you and overlook your sins. And for a rational person, somebody would say, you know what? God did a lot and that's where it should have ended. But God saw past that because no sooner is God telling the children of Israel in the days of Zechariah after the exile is over and he's calling his people back to his presence to worship him at the temple. Is he telling them that I'm going to have to do something else for you in the future? That I'm going to come in the form of man and you're going to kill me 
And in that act, I will forgive all the sins of the world. You see, we as people, we have a hard time dealing with people who have committed a transgression against us and forgiving them, not knowing the future, hoping that they won't offend us again at some later date. That's the struggle we have with as people because it's easy for us to be offended because we're flesh. But God so loved mankind that knowing the future, he still goes out and does all that he can for us so that we can have relationship with him. If that's our model, a side note, just think of what it really means to forgive and be forgiven. But the thoughts that kind of uh, led me to today's sermon are going to be found in Zechariah 12. And it's a short passage in Zechariah, but there's other passages that we'll look to in the uh, New Testament specifically that I think will flush this out to demonstrate that God loves us to an extent that we don't even fathom. But that love should compel us to do what God asks us to do. Zechariah chapter 12, verse number nine. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. You see, what God is telling the people is that the nations are going to be against you. And this kind of reminds us of the prophecy that Daniel had to where there was this great statue Representing the nations of the earth and that there was a rock that was formed not by man's hands that came down and toppled that statue. In the days of that fourth kingdom, in the days of that fourth kingdom, which would be the Roman Empire, we see that God is going to do something. And in this prophecy, we, we understand is that the one that they look upon, the one they have appeared is Jesus Christ. In the days of this Roman Empire, God's going to do something which he specifies in that day. All the nations will be against you, meaning that God's people will have problems again. That just because they are God's people doesn't mean that life will be easy. Doesn't mean that they're going to have an easy trek through this earth. What it means is that we have to be willing to embrace the opposition that this world presents us with because we are God's people. But what does he tell them? In that day, it shall come to pass that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So we know that when God is looking forward to this certain day, that there is going to be a vindication for his people. That those who have presented problems, God is going to deal with. And we as his people, all we have to do is what he asks us to do. 
We don't have to go out and try to seek some justice, some retribution for the wrong that has been given us. What we must do is be God's people because he is going to take care of the problems that's presented to us. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him as one is in bitterness for his firstborn. Now just on the surface of that, it would look like the ones who are against the one that is pierced is the enemies of God, right? From face value, one would probably surmise that the enemies of God are these other nations that are not the nation of Israel. But we all know the biblical story and we know how it unfolds and we know how the one that was pierced actually got to be pierced. What happened? God came in the form of Jesus Christ and his opposition was not those outside of Israel, but it was his own people. The very ones he came to show himself to to fulfill Prophecy scripture before was the ones who actually took the charge in bringing them to the cross. And God knew this would happen. This is not something that caught God by surprise. Jesus was ready for this when his earthly ministry started. But what's comforting for us it's not the fact that Jesus had to die, but the fact that God knew that that was going to happen. The fact that God knew that man is so far removed from my will that even though I'm restoring them in this day with this temple and bringing them back from exile, I'm going to go far and beyond what they can imagine and I'm going to restore the world totally. Because what I did with Israel didn't really stick. But I so love people that I look past their faults, their sins, and I forgive them even after they acknowledge what I have done to bring them back to me. Now this day that Zechariah prophesies about, let's read about it. And we'll take that from John and we'll start at 19 in chapter 19 and we'll start at verse number eight and it reads, when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid that saying was that the Jews had claimed that Jesus professed to be the son of God. This brought fear into Pilate and Pilate's response was he went into the judgment hall and said unto Jesus whence art thou but Jesus gave him no answer then Pilate said unto him speaketh thou not unto me knowest thee not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee Jesus answered thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above therefore he that delivereth me into thee hath the greater sin and from thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. 
When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was at the preparation of the Passover at about the sixth hour, and he said unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he therefore unto him to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two other with him on either side of him and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priest of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be with the scripture might be filled, which says, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he said unto his mother, woman, behold thy son. Then said he to his disciple, behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own home. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said it is finished and bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath day was in high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with them. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was dead already. They break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with the spear pierced his side and forthwith came out their blood and water. And he that saw it bear record and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true that ye might believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. A reference back to Zechariah chapter 12. You see, God knew the very things that were going to befall Jesus and what he would do to bring salvation to the world. 
And that meant that the very people that he came to save would not recognize him as the Christ, would not establish him as their leader. Even after they saw all the miracles he did, they would reject him for Caesar, an earthly king that afforded them no salvation, that actually made life harder for the Jews because he was trying to subject them and control them to an extent that went far beyond what God offered them in this life. You see, they were supposed to reign over themselves under a king from the tribe of Judah. But they negated God's commands and enslaved themselves to multiple nations throughout history because they wouldn't allow God to be their king. And they were supposed to acknowledge through the scriptures as it was pointed out numerous times in this chapter that Jesus fulfilled scripture that this was the Christ, the one who they were supposed to submit their will to so that they could receive the kingdom that only God could give them, but they rejected it. Crucify him, crucify him was their cry when Pilate asked, should we set him free? And sad to say, many a times, we cry out the same thing through our actions when we willfully commit sins, knowing the sacrifice that God made in Jesus for us to be freed from our sins. And it's difficult to, to say that, but it's the truth. While we might not have saw Jesus multiply bread, walk on water, heal the sick, cast out demons, we read it. We believe it. And we know what God calls us to through the scripture. And yet it still is not enough to pierce our consciousness to be perfect. But God is okay with that because his grace and his mercy makes up for what we lack in obedience and submission to his will. But there's a, another passage that speaks of a piercing that I believe we were all pricked by that led us to accept Jesus as the Christ. And when we go back to that moment to when we recognize who Jesus truly is in our lives, I think that that would help us when we struggle with sin. We will forget who we were called to be like the Jewish people were in this passage because we're not perfect. And even though God wants us to strive for that, he understands it's not a goal that we have the moment we were saved. But if we're mindful of what Jesus did for us, I think it would help us in those moments when we do fall weak. And it's a familiar passage. And this passage is, is found at the very first gospel sermon. And I'm not going to read all of it, but what I will read, starting in Acts 2, and I'll start at verse number 32. This Jesus has God raised up 
Wherefore, we all are witness, therefore, being by the right hand of God, exalted and having received the Father, the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and unto the rest of the apostle, man and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children, and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many words did he testify and exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. You see, the prick in Jesus' side fulfilled prophecy. The prick in Jesus' side led those who saw it to believe in Scripture and acknowledge that Christ was the Son of God. That prick in Jesus' side led to a prick in the heart of the witnesses of the crucifixion. And what were they to do once they were pricked in the heart? Repent. Save yourself from this untoward generation. And that's a message that is very relevant today because we have accepted that Jesus is the Christ and at times our own souls are pricked because of our sins. And our only answer is repent. Because what God said in the days of Zechariah was that he was going to enact vengeance, his wrath upon the foes of Jerusalem, those who were not his people, he was going to do something too. Save yourself from this untoward generation. It's something that we must constantly put in the back of our minds, the forefront of our actions, because we recognize that we're flesh. Because we recognize that even though God did all he can beforehand to act for our benefit, there are times when we slip, when we fall, when we don't live up to our calling. And the only answer we have is to repent and to put in that work to save ourselves. You see, our sin doesn't have to be fatal. It just needs to be stopped. And God knows this. He understands we're not perfect. And that's the beauty of serving God. Because he knew before he even saved us that he was going to have to put something in place to help us along the way. He gave us his Holy Spirit. He has given us grace. He has forgiven us. The only thing left is for us to work on our own salvations. Now to each and every person in this room. That looks different. But it requires that you do the work. For yourself. And the good thing is. We have a God who understands. That we make mistakes. 
We have a God who forgives us despite the fact that he has already sent his son to sacrifice for our sins. And so we should be compelled to be willing to look at the depths of our souls to see what is separating us from God so that we can work on those parts of our salvation. Because while we recognize that salvation is a free gift, we got to give up of ourselves to obtain it. I'm not sure where anybody is in their walk, but I know when Zechariah was given these oracles, God's people was going about and building the temple, reestablishing worship, a sign that God was with his people. And even as that was happening, God knew that there would be a time when his people would fall away from him. So we might be at a good place, but that doesn't mean we'll always stand there. Because the devil is busy. We ourselves fall into our own temptations at times. And we are constantly needing God's grace and God's spirit to strengthen us and to help us to overcome ourselves in this world. So if you're at a good place, you're strong in your faith right now, I encourage you to continue on that path. If you recognize that there are some things in your spirit and your soul and your walk with God that you've been neglecting, that you know is a hindrance to your spiritual growth, work on it. Because you know the truth of the matter? Wherever you say you are, God knows the truth. God knew that the Israelites were going to be the ones to betray him. His very people, the ones who were not recognized according to the scriptures that he had given directly to them, wouldn't recognize Jesus. These very scriptures that we read on a continual basis, which we sometimes do not see working in our lives. But that doesn't mean it has to stay on that path. We can do the necessary work to respond appropriately to who God has called us to be. It's hard. It's difficult. But we're not alone in the process. We have a God who loves us. We have a a Savior who cares. And we have a road to redemption that we won't walk alone. That's the message. I hope it meets you where you're at and brings you to where God wants you to be. My prayer is that when we all leave this life, we'll recognize each other in heaven in the next one. God bless you. I'm not sure where that sermon leaves you. My prayer is that you will contemplate it and incorporate it into your Christian life. If you're not a Christian, I ask, what's stopping you? God sent his son, Jesus, to freely extend the gift of salvation to all who will follow him. To get that salvation, one must follow the example set out in scripture. The book of Acts, which details the church's beginnings and expansion, shows us biblical examples of those who were saved. A good place to look is in Acts 2, 
you get Peter preaching the first gospel sermon in the response of those who heard and believed his message. They repented and were baptized, which added them to the church Christ established. The Bible only teaches of one church. If you want to be added to it, go to your local church of Christ and tell them your desire to be washed of your sins and to live a godly life. Study your Bible, put its teachings to practice, and you will make heaven your home.